Hello and welcome to How Things Grow. How Things Grow is a podcast about growth and the people who drive it. Join me, your host Shamant Rao, as I speak with some of the smartest people in tech and go behind the scenes of growth trajectories of companies and technologies that power our world today. We dive into the stories of many of these growth leaders and their companies. We talk about origins, early victories, strokes of luck, troughs of failure, and much more, and deconstruct many of the things that they do to drive dramatic growth for their companies and technologies. How Things Grow is presented by me, Shamant Rao, the founder and CEO at the growth consulting firm Rocketship HQ. In the past, I've also served as the travel editor at Mint Lounge, formerly the partner newspaper of the Wall Street Journal in India. How Things Grow is supported by our audio producer, Avery Miles. My guest today is Kat Lee. Kat is the newest partner at Mavaran. Mavaran is a $160 million consumer tech fund primarily focused on funding hypergrowth startups at the Series A and C rounds. Kat has had a long history of working on some groundbreaking growth projects and of taking huge leaps in her own career. She worked on the Facebook platform team starting in 2008 and helped drive the adoption of Open Graph, which drove some breakout growth for Facebook outside of its own platform. She then joined Pinterest in 2012 as the head of growth and helped drive 3x growth in MAUs for the then fledgling platform and helped set it on the path to scale and sustainability. After working on growth and marketing at Pinterest for four years, she transitioned to being the head of culture at Pinterest, in which capacity she did some very interesting and tremendously impactful work before she moved to being a VC at Maveron Partners earlier this year. In this fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, we'll talk about Kat's early career, where she saw the ascendance of Facebook from close-up, to her work growing Pinterest user base dramatically, to her transition to working on culture and her work as a VC today. Kat has had so many dimensions to her work and career, and these make this a very fascinating conversation. I'm very excited to welcome Kat Lee to How Things Grow. Kat, welcome to How Things Grow. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Honored to have you. One of your early roles was at Facebook, and you started in 2008. This was at a point when Facebook had 100 million registered users, which by some standards can be huge, but it's also a tiny fraction of what it is today. So what brought you to Facebook? Yeah, so what brought me to Facebook was a pizza party. I was in grad school at the time, and I had just finished my internship at Google. And it was the first time that I felt inspired by working with really smart people on the products that I use every day. And I was sitting in my classroom and I saw that every single person was on Facebook. And while they were coming to Michigan to recruit engineers, they weren't coming to recruit MBA students like me. So I crashed the pizza party, introduced myself to the recruiter, and just felt that there was a lot of opportunity and promise at Facebook because it was so small and yet so many people were addicted to it, um, including myself. So I love the product. I sort of explained that to the recruiter and the engineering manager that was there. And they granted me the interview. And then that's how I got the role. Long story short, my boss asked me to drop out of business school because I didn't need that degree anyway. I figured out how to graduate early. 
and started at Facebook in early 2008. And once I was there, it was really clear to me that everybody had that same passion for connecting the world and for continuing to grow Facebook and make it something that was valuable to all its users. So you hustled your way to working at Facebook, starting from crashing the pizza party to dropping out of your MBA. I had no idea. And I know that's precisely the sort of uh, initiative that's characterized you through your career. And we're certainly going to talk a lot more about that as we go on. Actually, just to clarify, I didn't drop out because my parents would kill me if I did. I managed to graduate early. I convinced my professors to let me finish some credits, take some things Got remotely. It. Got it. Yep. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Facebook wasn't anywhere as close to being the huge juggernaut that it is today. It was barely monetizing, if I remember correctly. Mobile was nowhere in the picture. So you certainly saw the promise of the platform because everyone was using it. But did you see that it could be taking over the world in the way that it's done today? I mean, certainly. Otherwise, I wouldn't have joined. But also, it wasn't a certain thing. So going back, when I joined, MySpace was bigger than Facebook, if you can remember that. Yeah. And there were many other social networks, you know, Friendster and Bebo. And it wasn't clear that Facebook was going to be the winner. But I think the entire team was really optimistic. We knew that we were really scrappy and that we were willing to work harder than anyone else. And I think it was that combination that fueled our competition and determination to, to succeed. Yeah. And it's easy to forget that Facebook wasn't the biggest social network for a very long time. And it could be argued that one of the key factors that catapulted Facebook ahead of a lot of the other networks was a project that you worked on. And this was the Open Graph. Can you tell us what Open Graph is? What are some of the examples of where we might be able to see what's been known as Open Graph and what inspired it? Yeah. So the notion of a graph, I guess, is in some ways a very computer science-oriented term. It's an abstract data type. And within Facebook, we sort of spoke all the time that Facebook has the social graph where you know people and their connections and who they communicate with. And so the notion of open graph is that if we wanted to extend that outside of Facebook so that other people and properties all across the web can contribute information into this sort of data set, people could then build really, really rich social experiences on top of it. And the reason why we called it Open Graph is that anyone could sort of read and write to this graph. That was the ambition. And sort of what inspired it is just this feeling that we believe that the world would be better if you could take your social graph and your connections across the web because the web would be better with people that you know. Your experience could be enhanced based on the activity of people that you know. And then similarly, that will fuel your experience on Facebook, knowing what people are interested in and the activities that they do across the web. So you guys saw that Facebook was a much better experience when people tried it with their friends, when people experienced it with their friends. And you were like, why would we not have the rest of the web be that way. Then it sounds like that was the impetus for it. Right. So Facebook created Open Graph. And yet, this was also something that needed to be adopted by publishers outside of Facebook. And I understand this is something you yourself worked on 
your pitched companies, your pitched publishers, and you had them actually use and adopt Open Graph. Again, like we've said before, Facebook wasn't humongous at the time. It was big, just like 400 million MAU, 450 million MAU at the time. But again, I don't know if it necessarily had the leverage or the negotiating power to be able to say, guys, you got to integrate this. Not in the manner that it has today, certainly. So given that you were pitching all these publishers to invest developer time, developer resources to integrate Open Graph, to basically change the websites, change the user experience. Did you encounter any pushback? And how did you deal with some of these objections, if there were any? Oh, definitely. There was a lot of pushback, mostly because it was very new and it wasn't clear what the sort of benefit would be if they did this. And in many ways, like you said, we were very scrappy and we, were, we very much sort of acted as a, a startup within Facebook in trying to get adoption for sort of the Facebook platform and our APIs as, as well as the Facebook plugins. And I think that we started with the grand vision that we believe that the world is better when you're engaging with friends and you have social content across the web. When we pitched partners, we were very strategic in thinking about the types of partners where we thought the experience could be enhanced. And we would take the time to often think as if we were their product managers and engineers and designers on how they could integrate it. And we tried to essentially make it as easy as possible for them to do that and to work with the team to make sure that it was working well. So you guys basically put yourselves in the shoes of their team and figured out what they would have wanted. Is that an example that comes to mind of the way you thought about yourself as a product manager or their engineers? One of the more successful examples was TripAdvisor. There are a lot of different reviews on TripAdvisor, but if you connected with your Facebook account, you logged in with Facebook, which was often really convenient for many users because then they only had to know their Facebook username and password, then they could immediately see places that their friends have gone to. And in some ways, those reviews are a lot more trusted than potentially the reviews of random strangers on TripAdvisor. And it saved users' time. So there was a user benefit to it. And the user benefit clearly was convenience and hopefully a better experience overall. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys were like, right, treat us as your product manager. We build social features to your products. And I, I would point out for our listeners that Facebook Connect is something that still is a huge, huge enabler of uh, social connections across mobile and web. And I think it's a legacy that has continued to live on since the time. And it's, I think it's a very, very powerful part of how the web works today. Mm-hmm. You also worked on developer relations. You dealt with developers who were building on the Facebook platform. Again, this is something that's come up quite a bit on how things grow, simply because some of the people that I've talked to worked and had huge wins during the heyday of virality, during the era of early Facebook apps. A lot of apps grew and eventually declined on the back of Facebook's platform changes. And like I said, there were apps like Branch Out, OMG Pop, Living Social, Zynga, all of these companies, their fortunes rose and declined with Facebook's platform changes. So I imagine as you worked with Facebook developers, you would have seen the rise and fall of a lot of these developers. What was it like seeing a lot of these developers built for Facebook, seeing such crazy growth, but also see many of them come crashing down? 
And did you also see that the hyper-viral growth that was happening at the time just wasn't sustainable? I don't know if I would phrase it that way, but certainly we were humbled and overwhelmed with the amount of growth that happened on Facebook platform. And I think there are a couple ways that we saw that. One of my early projects was to manage FB Fund. And FB Fund was meant to be kind of like a mini fund that would try to spur great apps and companies that are built on the Facebook platform. And what was interesting is that the reason why it was created was we thought that there was nobody who would build on the platform. And so we were very, very surprised when you know, so many different developers came out and really embraced this new fledgling platform. And obviously, it wasn't the most stable platforms. There was a lot of sort of hiccups along the way in terms of maintaining that level of growth and service to that set of developers. I also think that there was a lot of learnings in terms of managing the policies and building a relationship with developers that also benefited and really kept our users safe. And I think that that's where uh, there was this healthy tension between we naively created a lot of APIs and sort of saw what developers did with them and then would have to sort of iterate and tweak some of those things as a result of behavior that we saw that wasn't necessarily in the best interest of users, whether that's spammy behavior or et cetera. In fact, the interview that we released today on how things grow talks about branch out and Zach Onisko, who I interviewed on that, describes the relationship with Facebook as whack-a-mole in that it's just like they would build a feature and Facebook would shut it down and they would try to find another loophole, which can be exciting and frustrating. Uh, so I can imagine that was quite a whirlwind even for you guys at Facebook at the time. In some ways, there were there are a lot of similarities to what you did with Open Graph in that you enabled a lot of external partners to build upon Facebook. And as of today, a lot of features of Open Graph are still prevalent. Face files, feeds, and of course, Facebook Connect, that's the most prominent. But a lot of the viral features that were present for Facebook app developers aren't quite around. And as you pointed out, that's because you guys shut it down. Why? Do you think there was just a difference in these two trajectories? Open Graph still prevails, still is around, whereas a lot of the viral features that app developers adopted aren't. Well, it really comes down to what it means to build a sustainable platform. And I think it's balancing the needs of both users, which really should be sort of first and foremost, the experience that you want to create and, and drive a lot of value to. Then there's developers and then there's Facebook itself. And in balancing the needs and incentives and aligning those is always a challenge. And I think that that's why you've seen this evolution of platform because you know, I think that overall, Facebook has taken a very iterative approach to developing and, and growing. And that's a good thing, but it might not be sustainable. And so you've seen that evolution happen as a result of balancing the needs of those stakeholders. Got it. So it sounds like there was a focus on user experience that led you guys to really throttle a lot of the viral features for app developers. Yeah, and I think it's, yeah, definitely. Right. So you left Facebook around the time Facebook IPO'd the same month, at least according to my research, and you joined Pinterest, which had grown very dramatically at the time, but 
at the time was still a very small fraction of what Facebook's MAU was. I believe it was around 12 million at the time. You moved to Pinterest around this time. So what inspired your move to Pinterest? Well, as you mentioned, I had this incredible journey while I was at Facebook. I joined at 400 people and I left at 4,000. And I was able to see just this incredible growth and see a company um, rise to the challenge of having a really uh, successful exit. And I wanted to do that again, except I wanted to do that earlier. And I had the fortune, of course, working at Facebook in getting to know teams who had or people who had left Facebook to go to Quora and people who had left Facebook to start Pinterest. And you know, deep down, while these two teams were all about the same size, about 30 people, I fell in love with the Pinterest app and I kind of loved what they were building. I loved the culture of the team when I met them. I just, again, went with my gut and joined an early team as a product manager. And then the rest is history. I mean, as you know, six years later, 1,500 people. Yeah. What, what did you love about the app at the time? So I understood the use case. I love that it was this ability to collect ideas and to really, in some ways, engage with the things that you love and really understand your tastes. So outside of Pinterest, before Pinterest even existed, I had my own clipboard of all of these different magazine cutouts. And they were things like for my hair, things I wanted to wear. And it was just things that inspired me. And I kept that. And when Pinterest came to be, it was an obvious choice. Uh, for me, I understood why this needed to exist. Right. So you had an analog version of basically what Pinterest was building. Yes. Around the time that you joined Pinterest, something that surprises me is that Pinterest was still an invite-only platform, even though it had tens of millions of users. In fact, it was invite-only until a few months after you joined, only, I think, in the August of 2012 that it became open to all. So why keep it closed years after launch and what prompted opening it up? Yeah, I actually think that it was a really great strength of Pinterest to have kept the site invite only for so long. It really allowed the community and ecosystem to develop in a way that emphasized the true use cases. I mean, people, in some ways, it allowed the team to hone and encourage the right user behavior and for people to truly understand what Pinterest is as a result of it being invite only because it, it spread via word of mouth. And so there was this really strong uh, connection with Pinterest and the early community. I'm so curious when you say you wanted to encourage the right user behavior, can you elaborate on what that means? I don't know if you remember in the very early days of Pinterest, when you first signed up, the first thing you actually received was a Pinterest etiquette. And it was sort of like an understanding of how the community treated each other. Okay. And in some ways, seeing what other people curated is what I mean by the behavior. One of the early users of Pinterest, Victoria, who runs the blog SF Girl by Bay, she started this Pin It Forward campaign where she created a board called What Home Means to Her, pinned different things on it, and then tagged sort of 10 or 12 of her blogger friends to do the same. And from that, a whole set of content got created that really established the early beginnings of Pinterest. And if you didn't cultivate that behavior in that community, I don't know if you would have the Pinterest that you have today. Interesting. So it was more about making sure the quality of content and the quality of user interactions 
was strong in the early days. Is that a fair understanding? Absolutely. And then once you start to see sort of how people are, I mean, in some ways they were creating a new behavior online. So if people didn't have a sense of what do you do with a pin board or like what is a use case, that's what the early community did. And at least in my own work with products and games, I've certainly seen that users who come into referrals tend to be much, much more highly engaged and they tend to be more respectful of their friends. So I can certainly understand how making it invite only strengthens that behavior. So Pinterest, as you pointed out, is a network that's based on interests and it's unlike Facebook, which is based on social connections. And my research tells me the core demographic of Pinterest, at least in the early years, was very different from what a lot of other social networks were. Right? A lot of other social networks tended to be adopted by the tech-savvy East Coast and West Coast people, whereas I understand Pinterest's early adopters were what you would call Midwestern moms. Given that it was so different from what other social networks would have looked like, including Facebook, how did this change the way your team planned for growth or approached growth at Pinterest? In any sort of growth playbook, the first thing that you have to do is understand the users and how they use your service. And with Pinterest, what made it a really interesting challenge from a growth perspective is that many people used Pinterest as me time. And it wasn't even a social thing. It was actually like uh, people used it to discover and do what they love. And so they spent a lot of time on Pinterest, but they did it by engaging with the content. And so in seeing that, a lot of the early growth was in trying to understand in some ways marketplace dynamics, where how do we get the right content to the right set of people in the shortest amount of time? And very quickly, when you look at you know, your retention curves or what drives engagement, it really is this ability to find that content. And as you described it, people treated Pinterest as me time. So it wasn't a social experience certainly not in the way that a lot of social networks were, and it wasn't necessarily a viral experience. Did you guys consider at the time making it viral or building viral features because you had seen the power of virality both from how Facebook worked, but also from how people leveraging the open graph benefited from this virality. The app developers building on Facebook benefited from this virality. You saw the power of virality. So, was there a temptation at the time or was there planning around the time at Pinterest to say, well, people are treating this as me time. How about we let them connect with others and make it not me time and let's see if we can drive this super viral. There's been a lot of experiments uh, throughout the years, everything from group boards to make it easier sort of to collaborate on boards to invites, of course. If I think about virality in the network effect sense, the true network effect is really driven by the content itself. And in some ways, the virality comes from, or, or the growth really comes from, working to get a set of people in local markets to curate locally relevant interests and, and content, and then using sort of the product to make sure that it's discoverable via SEO and engagement to the right set of people. So in some ways, it's not viral in the sense of network effect social virality, but I do think the content itself provides a lot of virality because people discover it via Google or word of mouth. Interesting. So, and you said you guys made sure that the content spread in local markets 
and made sure it was locally relevant. How did you guys make that happen? This is something that we learned over time. I think it was really clear that in order to continue to grow, we had to grow outside of the U.S. And the U.S., we had a lot of users and people engaging with Pinterest. But it was a challenge. I think I learned very early on that just translating Pinterest was not enough. And we were not getting the sort of retention that we wanted. And so we started experimenting with a playbook where we would essentially implement something similar to how Pinterest got started here in the U.S., get a local team to recruit influencers, bloggers, people who we think their content would resonate on Pinterest and who have great taste and can curate what's locally relevant. And then at the same time, we made a lot of product improvements. And this work still continues on to this day to ensure that when you're signing up in a local market, that the topics and interests that you see are curated by that local team and that the tech itself can immediately make recommendations that are relevant to you in that market. Got it. So it's almost like seeding a market with content so that the subsequent users who come in actually see the content. They have a reason to engage with it. Mm -hmm. Got it. And you have to drive close to a 3x growth in MAU over a couple of years at Pinterest. What were some of the key inflection points or the most impactful product features uh, during this period? I mean, I would say that overall for Pinterest, I kind of mentioned two of them. One of them was transitioning from invite only to being open to everyone. Then it was launching our mobile apps. And we did that. It's one of my favorite Pinterest memories is there was a day in August in 2008, as you mentioned, that we dubbed as the summer of apps. So we were all working towards launching our Android second iPhone app and iPad app all on the same day. That was sort of our first launch event. That changed growth overnight. We took bets on how long it will take for mobile traffic to surpass web. And you have to remember, Pinterest has been open on the web for years, but it literally happened within 24 hours. Wow. So uh, that was one of the big inflection points. And then I would say that the other inflection points is, of course, really instrumenting our platform and understanding what were the levers that were driving growth. And there is a lot of low-hanging fruit that helped us increase our MAU count. And when I say low-hanging fruit, it's a lot of the basics, like everything from getting better at sign-up, getting better at activating users after sign-up, working on retention efforts through email and notifications. And then, of course, international is probably the next sort of big inflection point because it was this notion of growing market by market. And by activating those markets more effectively, we were able to move much faster. Sure. The point that I did find astonishing was that your mobile traffic overtook web traffic within 24 hours. So within 24 hours, you're like, oh, do we just have to change our technology stack? Do we have to change our teams? What was the impact of realizing that mobile is going to be way bigger than you had anticipated? What was the impact of that on the team itself and the way you guys decided to operate from there on? We definitely became much more mobile first. In some ways, we were almost, we switched over just in time. It almost felt too late, but I was really grateful that we made that switch when we did because it did change a lot of how we thought about the products that we built, the people that we hired, and we became a much more mobile first company. A lot of companies did not manage that transition very well or very effectively, even though their evolution of their mobile trajectory was a lot slower than 24 hours. 
they took many months or many years and I don't think they navigated it very successfully. So as you guys grew over the next couple of years, were there features or experiments that you would consider failures or setbacks? Um, I think it is, as a broad failure, one of the things that I, I take responsibility for on the growth team is it can be really easy to rely on the numbers to tell you a story of what's going on with growth. And it's very easy to fall into the trap of let's just optimize these numbers. And I think one thing I, I constantly learn is that it's not you can be very sort of data driven, but really it should be data informed. And a lot of times I've learned a lot from spending more time with our users and seeing them use the product. And you have to balance that user research with the data to get a better understanding of the story and in order to really understand what are the changes that you need to make for the product. Sure. Is there an example that comes to mind where you looked at the numbers and drew a conclusion that wasn't right? Yeah, a big example is international growth. It seemed like we were doing okay in terms of activation rate. Not great, but we weren't sure how to improve the activation rate other than through sort of optimization. And so by going to each market and watching people use the app, it was sort of mind-blowing in terms of understanding what were they struggling with and getting their feedback into how they interpreted the content that they saw in the app. And it became much more clear that it wasn't about the flow it was about the content and that a lot of the content just felt much more American and they didn't relate to it. Right. I can certainly see how sitting in New York on San Francisco, it's not very easy to see that until you go out and talk to those users. Absolutely. So, you know, you headed up growth for just over three years at Pinterest. You worked on partner marketing for some time and then you moved to a role that was radically different from everything you had done before. You became the head of culture. So what inspired this move and why was this important to you? Yeah, and I guess maybe I should explain that I think about my career at Pinterest as taking on, I mean, I loved, and even at Facebook, I tend to take on roles based on what I think will help drive the most impact within the organization. And I'm the type of person, I don't really care about my title. I prefer to focus on the work itself and work that can leverage my strengths. So in the case of mo moving to partner marketing, we had a tough time hiring for that role. And so I stepped into that role and also saw it as a challenge to take on something new and to learn a different part of the business, how to make money. And it was something that I had always seen as an area that can be really impactful to the business. And then similarly, with head of culture, I had been talking with Ben, who is our CEO and founder, and he had this idea around a role for culture. And it was an early idea that he wanted to spitball. And then after I had this conversation with him, I became really inspired and I wrote up my job rec with him. And I said, I think this could be really interesting. At that point in time, we were also in transition and transitioning between different heads of people. And I think we were at a point in our company that we wanted to get a lot more clear about what our culture was, what our values were, and how we can really create a stronger foundation to scale in the future. Sure. And you said you thought in terms of what would drive the most impact. And at this point, you were moving from a role where you had quantifiable impact to one where it wasn't so objectively clear, right? At least 
to me as an outsider, it feels like culture isn't necessarily as objectively measurable. So how did you think about your head of culture role as something that could be the most impactful? Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely something that I think I was a little bit wary of in terms of how do I define success and what does success look like? It isn't as measurable as something like partner marketing or growth. But I think that there are two things that really motivated me to take on this role. There's the impact piece, which I mentioned as it was something that our founders thought was an important role. And so I had that support. In some ways, by working on my goals and sort of the initial projects, it was really clear that there was a lot of work to do and a lot of ways that this work can benefit the organization. So that's everything from just getting an understanding of what our culture was today at that moment in time. And culture is really our collective behaviors. And then building the foundation of cross-communications on how you bring that culture to life across the executive team, our brand team, our people team, our facilities team, and internal comms. And I sort of told myself that there was these five questions that I really wanted to define and answer. And that is, what do we value? How do we work together? How do we make decisions? Who do we hire? And who's successful? And how do I really align that together and work cross-functionally along with Ben and Evan to making that a reality? So that's where I, I guess, got some confidence in terms of the impact. Yeah. And then personally, I love learning new things. And for me, I just saw this as another opportunity to learn another part of the business. I mean, when you think about why companies succeed and fail, a lot of times it does come down to culture. And not just this sort of fluffy understanding of culture, but really, how do you work across teams to bring that culture to life? So that was a part where I felt never gotten a chance to work with the set of teams and to work on this challenge. So I thought, why not? Wonderful. I think that was a brave choice to move into something you'd never tried before. I'm also very fascinated by what you did and just the idea of working on culture because I know and understand that it's deeply impactful upon a company and upon a company's fortunes. What isn't nearly as clear is how it can be impacted and changed. For instance, a lot of people have very different aspirations within a company. Some might just look at it as a two-year tenure before they move on to the next company. Some others might just want to do the job and get out at five in the evening. Some others might just want to just make VP in the next two years or three years, right? There's like all sorts of different goals, all sorts of different people. How do you think about changing culture and what does that look like? What do you do and what do the outcomes look like of that? I'm very inspired by this book called Switch by the Heath Brothers and the subtitle is Change When Change is Hard. I think that, yes, there are many reasons why people decide to join a company, But I think what's important is that people understand what's important, I guess. Like, uh, as I mentioned, there's clarity around what is the mission? What are our values? Who do we hire? Who's successful here? And how we make decisions and how do we work together? And I think helping people stay focused is a lot of the work behind culture. And many of the ways to make that change happen are over communication So the analogy used in the book is this rider on top of an elephant on a path. The rider being the sort of most cerebral part of how we take actions. So making sure that you over-communicate that, making sure that people understand why 
the why behind what the culture is and what the values are. And then the elephant, which is the heart piece, deep down people are controlled by their emotions. And so making sure to make that emotional connection and to tell those stories that relate to people in a very personal way is another way to evolve the culture. And then finally, the path itself. People don't want to walk into walls or people won't walk into walls. Really obvious what is the path and what is right and what does North Star look like. Right. So it's almost like how do we influence our employees to be aligned with the mission that we think is important? Sounds like that's how you were, you were thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Mission and values. Got it. And in that thought process, I understand one of the first things you did was to actually run user research on your own teams. Tell us about that process and what your key learnings were and what were some of the changes that came out of that research. As I said, culture is really our collective behaviors. And the first sort of step is to understand, well, what are, what are those behaviors today? And so partnering with user research, in some ways, this is studying us. We interviewed people across different tenures, different seniority levels, and different locations across Pinterest to understand how did they think about their day-to-day? What did they see as how people communicate within Pinterest, how people work together, who we brought in and who we hired, who's successful here, sort of just to get a gauge of what our culture was like today. Yeah. And that, to me, really highlighted what our strengths were and what our shadows were. And strengths are often, or the superpowers, I guess, are really often the antithesis of the shadows or when you know the super you know what the shadows were i mean for example pinterest is very much known as a company that is very humble a lot of culture comes from the founders themselves and the shadow to that is that people feel that we aren't often bold enough or another example would be we are a very collaborative culture and many times the shadow to that would be we tend to be slow to make decisions and i think the first step in understanding where to evolve or what to celebrate is to understand where you are today. And so that was step one. Yeah. And you described culture as a set of behaviors. So when you went through the user research process to understand what the behaviors were, are there examples of behaviors that you were like, hmm, these are behaviors that we think we should change and here's how we're going to do it. Are there examples that come to mind? Well, two things. One, through those interviews, it was clear that not everyone knew our mission. And our mission is our North Star. And at Pinterest, our mission is to help people discover and do what they love. And I think there was an opportunity there to clarify what is that mission and help that mission feel personal to everyone at the company. So that was one. And then second, one of our most sacred values and really influenced how Pinterest came to be is putting Pinterest first. And I think over time, we saw that earlier employees really put the pinner first in terms of how they thought about their work day to day. But many people were a little bit out of touch with pinners. And so we saw an opportunity to bring pinners more into the forefront of our culture. Got it. And that can certainly be a byproduct of scale. As a team expands, as a team grows, they are not necessarily going to be as aligned with the culture as the earlier employees. And certainly I can see what the opportunity was, and how you addressed it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you worked as a head of culture for a while, for a couple of years. And earlier this year, you made another huge change, and you moved 
to the VC space. Again, this is something that looked very, very different from everything he had done before. So what inspired your move? Yeah, the last year that I was at Pinterest, I saw that stat that was published, I think it might have been in Fortune magazine, that out of all the venture capital funding, from a dollar perspective, only 2.2% goes to all female founders. And it was something that really shocked me because it felt like if talent is sort of evenly distributed, why is venture funding so skewed? So I initially felt like I wanted to see what I could do to help and learn more about that stat. So I started angel investing through my efforts. I did YC Startup Investor School. I applied and got into the first cohort of first rounds angel track. And that really opened my eyes and gave me the confidence to continue to angel invest and to see if this is a place where I could continue to have more energy and, and help the ecosystem. From there, I got tapped to become a Sequoia Scout and scouted for them. And then through that, got sort of uh, introduced to Aileen Lee, who uh, was the woman who inspired me to even consider a career path in VC. And so she had introduced me to a bunch of firms, a bunch of firms reached out. I met the Mavron team and quickly fell in love with their culture and their team orientation towards helping provide value to founders. Right. And it sounds like that was a very elaborate research and learning process for yourself before you made the leap. So you really took the time to get to know the space. And I'm curious, you you mentioned Eileen Lee. Was that her name uh, as being somebody who inspired you? Yes. Yeah. What way did she inspire you and why was she inspirational? Well, Eileen, obviously, was one of the women who started the All Raise movement with a mission to try to get more female funders and founders to really work and help tackle sort of some of the challenges associated with Uh, the existing ratios across venture capital funding and women being able to start companies. So she kind of inspired me through that. But also when I had a chance to speak with her, she was the woman who said, hey, Kat, you should consider a career adventure. And I think I hadn't thought about it up until that point. Right. So she had walked the path of enabling more female founders get funded and also do the funding. And that was certainly what had triggered your own interest in VC when you saw the stat about 2.2% of venture money going to female founders. Again, that, that number seems astonishingly low. Why do you think that number is so incredibly low? Even though, as you said, the talent distribution is roughly equal. What do you think are the factors that contribute to that? Well, I think it's a very complex issue. And based on what I'm still learning and and what I know today, there's a lot of aspects to it. I mean, one is if you look at the diversity that exists across many of the partnerships at venture capital firms, I think we've all learned and the research showed that diverse perspectives help you make better decisions. And I think that diversity of thought helps you be more open and to considering solutions and different business ideas. And I think that all of us have unconscious bias and all of us tend to gravitate towards things that we're familiar with. And so if you don't have a lot of diversity in terms of partnerships within venture capital firms, then that, of course, affects the number and the types of companies that you fund and the diversity of the companies that you fund. And then I think that there's a wealth creation aspect to this as well, because the companies that then become unicorns and that create sort of a new set of 
entrepreneurs or birth sort of a new set of entrepreneurs is a system that continues to feed itself, right? If um, sure. So that's why I think it's a very interesting challenge and one that requires a lot of aspects to shift and change in order to see that ratio change. Sure. And you've certainly driven change both within growth teams and within products, but also within a company and within the culture. So given what you've seen of change and what causes things to change, what are some of the things you think you're going to be doing to change that stat of the amount of money that goes to female founders? I was going to say I'm really hopeful and optimistic. And to give you some examples is one of the reasons why I joined Maverick is I'm not the first female partner. And in fact, our team is 50-50 gender split, which is very, very unusual. And I think that has everything to do with the fact that it's changed our results. Now, last year, 70% of the companies that we funded have female CEOs. Wow. Okay. And that was not something that I know the team actively tracked or tried. In fact, they were really surprised when they looked at that stat at the beginning of this year. But I think it goes to show that by tackling this problem, having more diversity at the sort of partner level will then yield hopefully more diversity in the funding level. Yeah, that's certainly a structural change in the way VC is set up. And it sounds like you've set up a small change within Maveron, and hopefully that can trigger a much larger change in how VC is structured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And something else that I found very interesting about what you've done is you worked in two very high growth startups and then you took a sabbatical to travel and learn, which I find not very common because you certainly could have sought out a third high growth startup or jumped into a new role right away. So what inspired you to travel and did you have any FOMO at all that as you went into your sabbatical? I didn't have any FOMO at all. I actually went into my sabbatical very deliberately. One of the things that, as you mentioned, one possible path for me was do this again to with a third startup or start my own company or go towards this path in investing. And I wanted to take that time sort of away from the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley for myself to really get at what was important to me. In some ways, I figured out my personal values. I also had some goals that I was ignoring as a result of being so focused on work. I think deep down, a lot of us here in the Valley are achievers, and I'm no different. And I think I was very focused on that achievement aspect of my career. And I told myself that I wanted to take a month off for every year that I worked at Pinterest, which is why I had the six months off. And I spent a lot of time. And like I said, I had these goals. So one goal was to get healthier. I spent a good portion of my trip exercising and going on hikes and eating healthier. And then, of course, another aspect was spending more time with friends and family. Obviously had time to do that. And then a kind of a stretch goal I had was I wanted to learn how to speak Chinese. I'm Chinese by background, but I had never learned how to speak. It's something that I think is really hard to do part-time. And so with this time off, I thought I could really dedicate and focus and then reward myself by going to China and really learning how to speak there. And so I did that and then came away incredibly refreshed, incredibly grounded, and felt like it was in some ways time that I needed to reset before my next adventure. I like those words, refreshed and grounded. And certainly as as somebody who values achievement himself, I can certainly see how valuable it can be to step back from the achiever mode, right? Yeah, and I think that's just one of the aspects that makes everything you've done so impressive, Kat, and that's 
precisely why I'm, I feel so honored to have you on the show. I do know I'm, we're coming up against time. So perhaps this is a good time for us to start to wrap up. So Kat, could you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you? Sure. Well, anyone is welcome. I'm always happy to meet people for coffee. So if you want to send me an email, I'm just Kat, C-A-T, at Mavron.com. And then I spend a lot of time on Alpha for all the women out there. It's sort of a woman-only network, but I've done a couple AMAs on that. So you can find me there at Kat, Kat, Kat. And then I am going to do my best to publish more on Medium. And I'm Cat Lee, Cat Lee at Medium. Excellent. Alpha, Medium, and of course, via email in person in San Francisco. That's where people can find you. This has been incredible, Cat, following your amazing, amazing journey and the incredible leaps you've made consistently over time. Not just the leaps, but also the backward step that you took. And I find your story truly inspirational. I'm truly excited to release your interview to the world. Thank you so much for appearing on How Things Grow. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Shamant again. Before you go, I have a very small but important request for you. If you get any pleasure or inspiration from this episode of How Things Grow, could you please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform, be it iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasting fix. This podcast takes many, many hours of my time and is very much a labor of love. When you write a review, it will not only be a great deal of encouragement to me, but will also support getting the word out about how things grow. Thank you so much for listening along, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of How Things Grow in two weeks' time. Thank you.